Welcome to Oh My Dollar, a personal finance show with a dash of glitter. Dealing with money can be scary and stressful, but here we give practical, friendly advice about money that helps you tackle the financial overwhelm. Here's your host, Lillian Kerbick. And that was Will Romy. Let's talk about money. So as you know, this month is Healthcare Month on Oh My Dollar, and we are really excited to answer more of your questions. So last week we had on Jack Hopper from Take Command Health, and he answered a lot. We had a the podcast had a forty five minute episode, so if you need to really dive in, you can listen to it. Um, but because of that, we actually had quite a few listeners write in with their own questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also some things that uh, I realize maybe we should clarify for folks. Um, this is going to be very health insurance exchange specific because reminder, December fifteenth is the deadline. If you are on a healthcare exchange plan this year you need to log in and renew or change your plan for next year. So you can't do nothing and have it continue to exist. And that is because in Oregon and in most states, almost all of the plans changed slightly for next year. And almost all of them got slightly more expensive, unfortunately. Um, And so even if you're like, hey, I like my plan, it's fine. You need to log in and make sure that um, you pick a plan that is similar because it will probably have changed slightly. Don't do nothing. Yeah, don't do nothing. <laughs> nothing will leave you with no health insurance next do year. Do something. That's the, <laughs> that's the, the only, simple version. The only way, if you don't enroll by December 15th, if you uh, qualify for a healthcare.gov uh, plan, the only way to enroll next year is to have a baby or get married um, or divorced. So if you don't want to do any of those things, get healthcare, you need to enroll by December 15th. If you're running late, though, there's some strategies. <laughs> there, there are some strategies. All right. Um, so should we jump into the questions? Yeah, let's yeah. jump into some of these questions. Okay. So our first question, here's a scenario. I have a medication and I know I need coverage for it, but otherwise I expect to not use my health insurance for any doctor's visits. What things should I be looking for on the exchange? That's a really good question. So if you know that generally it's unlikely that you're going to use your health insurance and um, paying less per month is important to you, Mm -hmm. one thing you can do is look for a plan that um, has a low copay before deductible for your medication. So you will be able to see this when you're looking through the plans. One of the things it'll show you is it'll have four numbers and one of those numbers will be copays. And if it says $50 copay after deductible, that means you're gonna have to meet that deductible before it starts paying it out. However, if it has a $50 copay before deductible, that means that you're only gonna need to pay $50 for your medication um, per refill. So perhaps your medication gets refilled monthly, perhaps it gets refilled every eight weeks. Um, That's how much you would have to pay before deductible. If you have kind of a regular generic medication. So for example, if you have a a regular medication, you know, you know, you'll be needing something like uh, medication for high blood pressure. Yeah, but not something that's a chronic health condition. Like, so I have rheumatoid arthritis, so my drug is really expensive, and it's what's called a specialty drug. But if you have something that's just a regular generic drug um, that you know doesn't cost a ton out of pocket, then probably what you're going to want to do is actually go for a plan that's um, in what's called the silver level category. And that's because almost all those bronze level plans are the high deductible plans that we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the ones where after Absolutely nothing is going to be covered until you hit your deductible. Um, However, the silver level plans quite often will have some coverage before your deductible. And remember, because of the ACA, until they repeal it and things change wildly, but for 2018, 
um, you will still be able to get preventative care covered before you hit that deductible, no matter what your plan. So even oh. on those bronze level plans, your regular preventative care, um, which there's a ton of different things that fall into that category, but that actually also includes birth control. Mm-hmm. Um, so any of those well woman exams, your annual checkup, that is all covered even if you have not met your deductible, if you have an ACA compliant plan. So that's an uh, important thing to remember. Um, however, drugs are not necessarily on that list, although a couple drugs are. Should I assume <laughs> that all plans on healthcare.gov are ACA compliable? Uh, yes, oh. there is not a single plan. If it is on healthcare.gov, that means it is ACA compliant. Gotcha. Yep. Um, however, if you go directly for if you don't qualify for a subsidy, subsidy, it can be um, cheaper sometimes to go directly to the health insurance companies. That's actually true for a lot of folks in Oregon. If you buy what is called off the exchange directly from a healthcare provider, they may not be ACA compliant, um, and you need to make sure to ask them. If they are, you might be paying a little less out of pocket and get pretty good health insurance. However, huh. if they're not ACA compliant, if they don't get rid of the penalty. Um, you will owe a penalty for not having an ACA compliant plan. I have a bucket of off-topic questions about this, but I think we'll be <laughs> opening up the whole can of worms. We really need to do just <laughs> yeah. like a whole policy episode yeah. because I feel like uh, a lot of our listeners are kind of wonks and want to but, know about yeah. this. But maybe we should stick to ACA for now. Yeah, we got like a week until we, we want to make that. sure you guys get health insurance. <laughs> we'll dive into the policy after the um, healthcare.gov deadline, maybe. Um, cool. <laughs> Um, so our next question was actually something I was wondering about as well. Anne writes, HSAs, useful saving plans, evil Republican tax loophole, or both? Anne says, due to my chronic health condition, I selected a high deductible health plan that covers 80% once I've met my deductible and 100% once I've met the out-of-pocket maximum. I take a super expensive medication that has copay assistance through the pharma company, and I only pay a $5 copay, and they pay everything else until my out-of-pocket maximum kicks in, making everything free. I've never added anything myself, though, because their contribution more than covers my minor costs. Uh, I would also like to learn more about HSAs. Yeah. Um, so Anne, Anne was writing that, um, you know, one of her coworkers told her that if she has more than $2,000 in her HSA, then you can invest it and it grows tax free. Um, and she kind of researched it. And a lot of articles essentially called it an evil Republican tax loophole for wealthy people that also shifts the burden of responsibility onto consumers to save more for health care. And while there are a policy that is entirely based around HSAs, I do think is an evil Republican tax loophole. No bias here, obviously. Um, <laughs> HSAs are magic and you should totally take advantage of them. So before we've talked about how, um, you know, there's pre and post tax retirement accounts. Um, mm-hmm. Like and, an IRA and a uh, Roth IRA. Yeah, traditional yeah. versus Roth. You know, um, one is pre and one is post. And the Roth IRA, you pay the taxes on it when it goes in. And then when it comes out, you uh, you don't pay any taxes. And traditional is the opposite. You can put more money in because it's pre-tax, but then you'll pay taxes when you withdraw at retirement age. Mm-hmm. HSAs are magic in that they are the only thing where it is tax-free going in and tax-free coming out. So, and this is because Republicans hate taxes, um, but it's also because technically to use HSA money, it has to be used on a qualified health expense. However, it converts to a regular retirement account at retirement age. So 
Not only does it grow tax-free, you can pull money out tax-free once you hit retirement age. So a lot of people use HSAs as a way to reduce their tax burden. So I actually emailed Ann back and asked her what her um, tax bracket was. Mm -hmm. And she said she makes about 80K. um, And that's all through W-2 income. So she doesn't, you know, have massive tax write-offs. And she's single and doesn't own a house. So she, um, you know, pays pretty high taxes and she doesn't itemize her deductions. This is really important because HSAs, I think the biggest advantage for people are people that are in a high tax situation. So Anne makes very good income for a single person um, and doesn't have a lot of deductible expenses. What an HSA will do is it lowers your um, taxable income for the year. So instead Mm. of having 80K gross income, if she puts $2,000 in her HSA, she's going to have $78,000. Obviously, this doesn't make a huge difference at kind of that level, but essentially you get a bonus of 25 to 35 percent, whatever your tax rate is, on that money that you put in the HSA. And it's just an extra savings account, especially because you have a chronic health condition and things are in flux so much. One of the awesome things about HSAs is maybe you're doing great now and you're you have a good job with an employer that puts money in that HSA. That HSA is always yours. The money you put into it, you get to keep when you leave that job and you can just let it keep growing there. And so it's actually just a really awesome savings account where the money is tax free and you can pull it out at any time for health um, insurance and you can go back eight years. So if you keep your receipts, you don't necessarily have to take that money out. I do say that it's a little more annoying to do it for past tax year um, expenses, but technically you can do it for like eight years. And you can you can buy things with HSAs like condoms. I mean, like you, there are a lot of things that are considered health expenses that you can do. So um, I have an HSA open and I use it to pay for massages um, because I have rheumatoid arthritis. So massages are a medical expense for me. Um, you don't you can have less of a good excuse for massages and they can count as a um, <laughs> Uh, medical thing and essentially means that I get a 25% discount on whatever I spend on massages. Hmm. Um, And it means that, you know, I don't, um, unfortunately, there's very few plans on the healthcare exchange that kind of cover a lot of alternative care. So if you're someone that, you know, maybe does acupuncture or goes to a naturopath and you're not able to get care uh, coverage for that on the healthcare exchange plans, then HSAs can be a really good way to be able to shop around, not have to go within a limited provider network and still get that discount so it seems like the hsa would offer a lot of flexibility it's great so the question is how do you open one (laughs) (laughs) so um ann's in the lucky position where her um work actually has one for her which Mm -hmm. is really awesome because it 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 involves very little work you literally just fill out a piece of paper and tell them how much you want to set aside in it um if you are self-employed or don't work for an employer that has an HSA, you can um, actually just Google Health Savings Account Oregon. And um, a lot of credit unions, a lot of banks have them. The thing I want you to look for is the fees. We've talked about this before in investing. Um, HSAs, don't, they're not a big moneymaker for a lot of these banks. Um, and so they tend to have a little bit of a fee associated. It's usually like two, $2 a month. It's not crazy. Um, but uh, just kind of keep an eye out. Make sure that you're not paying massive amounts of fees in order to have this savings account. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the basic back of the envelope math is you shouldn't be paying more in fees than you're saving in taxes. Right. right otherwise, you bury your <laughs> pile of cash in your backyard. Uh, yeah, otherwise, you're just creating another account that you have to account for. Um, so HSAs are really great. So the other thing I love about HSAs is I've I've recommended having an emergency fund that um, hopefully has the amount of your deductible or your out-of-pocket maximum in it, um, which is a really great strategy. A lot of you are not at that. You're like, that sounds great, but my out-of-pocket maximum is $7,000. <laughs> and I'm not able to save $7,000. <laughs> 
the thing the HSA just rolls over year to year. It can be a really awesome way to just put that money aside, not really think about it and kind of have that in the back of your head, especially if you're a generally healthy young person that, you know, engages in dangerous activities like you're on a mini bike dance troupe or, you know, like downhill Stilts. skateboarding or you're in roller Stilt derby. Skiing. <laughs> All of my things involve wheels, apparently. Uh, yeah. So if you're involved in some kind of sport where suddenly you might have 50K in medical bills because we live in America, um, the HSA can be a great way to not have that be as painful. Yeah. In our so. previous episode, actually, we talked quite a bit about HSAs. Yeah. So Anne actually out. wrote that question in and then she wrote back and she went, oh, I just listened to your most recent episode. Apparently, I, I thought about HSAs because it was on my mind. Um, so one of the other things I want to talk about are chronic health conditions. So if you are in a situation where you have what is called a specialty drug, and I've mentioned this before, I'm on a specialty drug. My drug is $3,000 a month. Damn. <laughs> it's crazy expensive. <laughs> I do not make that much money. I wish I made that much money. Um, and I do not pay that. Majority of that is paid for by what is called copay assistance. If you are on one of these really expensive drugs, it's very likely that you qualify for copay assistance from the pharmaceutical companies. I have some personal feelings about how I think this is a giant antitrust violation because they're essentially propping up their their prices in the marketplace because they have a monopoly. But mm -hmm. that is a rant for a different episode. <laughs> um, if you qualify for copay assistance, it's one, you should enroll in it. It's essentially a tax on lazy people if you don't enroll in it. And I understand if you've got a chronic health condition, it can be really frustrating and hard to deal with the bureaucracy of these copay assistance programs, but they will save you tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so it is worth enrolling in it. Look it up. Um, some, In some cases, um, if you're on an HMO, so if you're in Oregon, Kaiser is called an HMO. Um, it can be harder. You can enroll in these copay assistance programs, but because they don't accept what's kind of called coupons at their pharmacies for HMOs, what they will do is they will give you a debit card that is their debit card, and you use that to pay your copays. Um, huh. And it's really great because it limits your exposure while simultaneously it is it counts towards the money that you spend towards your deductible and your out-of-pocket maximum. So if you're someone that has one of these... so. Great examples of these health conditions tend to be autoimmune disorders. So if you have something like um, uh, Crohn's, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, um, you know, if you have uh, ulcerative colitis, any one of these really attractive uh, medical problems, and you know that you're going to pay a ton on these medications if you get an infusion of any sort, um, then it means that you'll likely hit your out-of-pocket maximum very early in the year. So if you are in one of these situations, mine, for example, I'm on what's a high deductible plan, so I don't pay that much each month, but um, I pay about $5 towards my copay until March when I hit my out-of-pocket maximum, which is $7,000. So it's not a small out-of-pocket maximum, but my drug is crazy expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and then my healthcare is free for the rest of the year. Oh. So the copay assistance almost seems beneficial beyond assisting with your copay. Um, copay assistance is... Not only does it assist with my copay, it makes the rest of my healthcare free for the rest of the year. So I'm able to um, time all of my all of my specialist visits. So I have rheumatoid arthritis. I'm not on super great health insurance, and because of that, my specialist fee is like two hundred dollars. I have to see a rheumatologist every six months just to make sure like I'm not decaying, um, and I time both my rheumatologist appointments to happen after March because oh, I, I pay huh. nothing. 
that $200 copay that I normally would have to pay to see a specialist, because I've hit my out-of-pocket maximum, I do not owe it. It sounds like such an important thing to know about. Yeah. Um, I had another friend who has epilepsy. She uh, didn't have a copay assistance program, but unfortunately, she had appendicitis. Um, and so she hit her out-of-pocket maximum pretty quickly. Um, and that was the year that she chose to get a rather expensive um, procedure for her epilepsy, where she actually got like an electronic thing installed in her body. I don't totally understand it, but it's magic apparently. Um, but it's very expensive. But because she'd already hit her out-of-pocket maximum, she went, okay, this is the year I can do this because I'm actually not going to owe anything more. Huh. One last thing. We mentioned this last week, but be aware that in-network and out-of-network is different when it comes to out-of-pocket maximums. So um, just be aware that if you are if you are on a PPO, which we talked about last week, and someone from out-of-network touches you, you may owe money even if you've hit your out-of-pocket maximum. So just be aware of that. Of course, often if you're in that situation, you're not aware of anything because you like have had a large crash and are in the hospital. But, you know, it's something to be aware of. Right. Huh. Um, That's fascinating, though, that, that it, I'm, I'm, I'm intri- intrigued by the ways you can use your out-of-pocket maximum to your benefit at times. Yeah. Um, no, it's you can you can feel free to be smart because, you know, health insurance is the second largest expense for most Americans at this point. Um, and it is, uh, it is a system and you might as well work the system, right? Like it's frustrating, uh, how much I spend on health insurance. So I might as well milk it. Um, (laughs) and I think it's crazy. They can charge $3,000 a month for my medication. So I'm free to let them pay that. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, they generously pay for my copay so that they can get the other $18,000 a year that my insurance company will pay to them. So it makes business sense for them. Yeah. That's, yeah. which is, that's a, that's why a, that's a weird, weird why mess. it is an that's... antitrust violation, but you know, whatever, that's a different story. I'm not a lawyer. It's a different podcast. <laughs> different podcast. The Lily rants about yeah. healthcare policy podcast coming soon. Okay. Last but not least, I think this one's really important for a ton of our listeners. What should you do if you have no idea what your income will be next year? Like if you're a freelancer or a small business owner, or just don't know? <laughs> yeah, uh, this is a really good question. And I actually, once again, got to use myself as an example. So this year was my first full year in business. And um, for the 2017 year, I estimated my income at $40,000 for the year. I was making that up. I had no idea how much I was going to earn. Um, This turned out to be a huge overestimate, unfortunately. And my income for the year is likely going to fall somewhere closer to $22,000. I've been paying $231 each month for my health insurance. And I don't get any subsidy because $40,000 was enough that I didn't qualify for a subsidy. However, my income will actually be low enough that at $22,000, I qualify for about a 75% subsidy. So if I had had perfect information and entered $22,000, I would have been paying a lot less. So because I overestimated, at tax time, I'm likely to get around $1,800 back at tax time, which sounds really awesome, but I'm going to owe a ton of taxes. So it's you know really right, just going to wash things out. <laughs> you'll push it into the hole. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is one strategy. Like, this is really awesome. You're getting a chunk of change back in March or April when you file your taxes can be really great. And this is especially true if you're someone that has a W-2 job but then has some side income that's variable. And that's mm-hmm. why you're not sure because it's likely you're not filing estimated payments for your taxes. Usually if you have kind of a main W-2 job, you won't also do those quarterly estimated payments. Um, if you're making all of your money from freelance income, 
after your first year, technically you should be making the quarterly payments. A lot of people don't if their income is lower because the penalty is uh, very for not filing quarterly payments is relatively low, and the cash flow advantage for a lot of people they just put it off. Um, but so getting that eighteen hundred back at tax time can be really great if you're someone that's going to owe a lot because you have some self employment income. Um, in twenty eighteen, though, I'm taking the opposite tactic. I'm underestimating, hopefully, my income at $25,000 for the year, which I really, really hope to make more than. Um, And that means that I'm only going to be paying $37 each month towards my health insurance, which actually, Mm -hmm. if I didn't receive a subsidy, would be $278 per month. Um, So I'm receiving a $240 subsidy. If I earn more than the $25,000, which I estimated my income at, I will need to pay back all or some of that $240 a month subsidy at tax time in 2019. Um, There is no penalty for underestimating your income. All you have to do is pay back the portion of the subsidy that was overpaid to you. So because I track my income and expenses really regularly, which I recommend all the time Mm -hmm. on this show, I'm going to know if I go over that $25,000. If you are someone that does not track your expenses and income and usually hands a shoebox full of things to your accountant (laughs) at tax time and has genuinely no idea how much you've made, um, then you are likely in the position where you should try the tactic I did this year, which is pay the full amount and then be surprised if you get some money back at tax time. But if you are good at tracking your income, know if you're going to hit that amount and know that you are pretty good at saving money, save that extra money that you're not paying each month towards a health insurance premium, and then have that money at tax time available if you need to pay back the subsidy. Um, in in this case, I actually hope that I'm going to owe back that $2,000 at tax time. Right, because that's going to increase your because cash flow during the more. year. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it means I've got better cash flow each month. It means that I've gotten my expenses back down below $1,000, which they were not when I was paying $250 a month for health insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also means I've earned more money, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> which, and, is, which, which is, which is part of my thing, goal. Yeah. Um, I'm only able to play this game because I track my income, though. So this is an important thing to know. If you are someone that is not tracking, not budgeting, and has wildly variable income, you may want to overestimate your income. So short answer is if you know you're good at tracking your income and you also could use a little looser expenses, so better cash flow, feel free to estimate low. If you know you're terrible at setting aside money and you already owe a ton at tax time, so a small offset might help, then estimate higher and understand you'll be paying a bit more each month but will be less likely to owe money back. I see. Does that huh. make sense? No, that makes lots of sense. Um, and I know these numbers are going to seem really frustrating if you have dependents because you're going to be like, I wish that I could pay $250 a ta- for health insurance. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the reason that my health insurance is so relatively cheap for Americans is because I have this crazy copay assistance thing. Um, and because of that, I can. it makes more sense for me to have a cheap plan because they pay for most of my expenses. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm sorry if you're cringing and going like, I spend $1,200 a month. I'm sorry. <laughs> America failed you. Yeah. All right. Cool. So I think that answered some of our most popular questions around health insurance. Um, please f- feel free to submit any questions that you have to questions at ohmydollar.com. If you have any other questions about health insurance, um, we are going to record once more before the deadline on December mm-hmm. 15th. And if you have any questions for Lily Rance about healthcare policy podcast, which we're definitely going to start, yeah, you know, feel free to send those in. <laughs> and past that, I have healthcare questions well past December. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ne- if you ne- nearly to have all year round. Questions, 
I know that uh, some folks had some questions about whether or not they should get um, health insurance on the exchange if they're not sure when they're going to get a job. So um, hopefully we'll dive into those next week. Our producer is Will Romy, and our intro music is by Aaron Parecki. I'm Lillian Kerbake, your personal finance educator and host. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember to manage your money so it doesn't manage you.